0: Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is your spot before and after the U.S. women's national soccer team's match against Nigeria.
1: Match begins at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 6th at Audi Field.
2: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the set. Check of the runner, the 3-2 pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out with his best curveball so far. The first major league strikeout for Cade Cavalli. Cade Barrett-Ruiz asked for time to flip that ball over the Nationals dugout as well. The pitch. Swing a high fly ball center field. Robles racing back, still going back. This one over his head and off the base of the wall in straightaway center. Two runs are going to score. In at second with a double is Donovan Solano. India and Farmer cross the plate. It's 4-0 Cincinnati.
1: Overall, you know, for the first day, the jitters were out there, So, um, but I thought his stuff was good and he's going to uh, he's gonna do well. So we'll get him out there again in five days and we'll see what happens.
0: And welcome to Nashat Chat for Saturday, August 27, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, look, It was one game. That's all it was. It doesn't necessarily mean anything for the future. That said, this was a much-anticipated game, and the result was disappointing, both in terms of the performance of the pitcher and the outcome of the game. We, on Friday night, had the Major League regular season debut of the Nats top-pitching prospect, Cade Cavalli, one of the most highly-anticipated Major League debuts of the Nats pitcher in years And uh, no, things did not go as we would have wanted them to go. Seven runs in four and a third innings. Nats fell to the Cincinnati Reds 7-3 in game one of a three-game series. There's a lot to take in from the Major League debut of Cade Cavalli. Uh, There is how he pitched. There is the defense that was played behind him. There was the perspiration that Cade Cavalli enjoyed over the course of of that outing. Mark, we would have scripted it to go a little bit better, but it has happened. Cade Cavalli has started his major league career.
1: Yeah. And Al, I, I sort of have mixed feelings about it. I don't come out of this and say, man, he pitched horribly. He gave up seven runs and four in four and a third. That was a real like huge letdown because there were good things in there, six strikeouts. You saw the stuff that was really good. Like you said, I'm not trying to make excuses here, but he's a couple of defensive plays away from not giving up several of those runs that scored three of the runs, the last three of them all scored when he was no longer in the game after Erasmo Ramirez replaced him and gave up a three run double. And the sweat issue, <laughs> the grip issue was clearly a problem for him Now, I'm not making any excuses. And he was the first to say, "Hey, the other pitcher had to deal with it too." And by the way, Mike Miner was outstanding in this game. So that's something he's going to have to figure out, of course, because um, chances are, You pitch in Washington, D.C. for a while, you're going to deal with some sweaty nights. But I feel like a couple of things change and we have a very different outlook of how this game went. The result still wasn't good and it's not like you walked out of this and said, oh boy, this guy is a future ace. This was nothing like Steven Strasburg's debut at all. But I do think the final line is a little bit misleading and not necessarily truly indicative of how he looked.
0: Yeah, I think what's tough, to whatever extent, you know, one start is going to be labeled as tough, right? I mean, there's so much more to go for Cade Cavalli in his major league career. But you know, this was built up. If you're on Twitter, the Nats official Twitter account in the hours leading up to this game was hyping up Cade Cavalli and hyping up this game in a manner in which we have not seen the Nats official Twitter account hype up any player or game this season. And that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. But, you know, you would have liked to have done better than seven runs in four and a third innings. Like in this season of, you know, the Nats being the worst team in the majors and all these bad outcomes and all these bad individual player seasons, you want things that make you feel better. And, you know, I don't think anyone was anticipating a no hitter on Friday night, but could we have done better than seven runs in four and a third innings? But to your point, it's not as simple as, well, that's as poorly as he pitched. So that was the final line, seven runs. Four to third innings. Uh, He gave up six hits, three doubles, and three singles. He issued two walks and three hit-by-pitches. Yes, three hit-by-pitches. Did have the six strikeouts. He threw 99 pitches, 57 strikes versus 42 balls. And yeah, he had obvious grip issues, was constantly rubbing dirt on his throwing hand. I guess let's start with that. What was up with that? He was sweating like a hog, okay? That was pretty obvious. And he could not get a proper grip on the baseball, it seemed.
1: No, I've never seen a pitcher, after every single pitch, go to the mound like that and have to rub dirt on it. He went to the rosin bag a little bit. I was surprised he didn't go there more. Obviously, he's got a routine. He knows what he needs to do. But My guess is that that was a combination of his own nerves, understandably so, in your major league debut. and It was a really humid night. The temperature was 87, but it felt muggy. There was no breeze. It was just a very still, thick air. and Maybe that's just not conditions he's that used to, although he grew up in Oklahoma, so he's pitched on hot nights before. I think they have humidity in Oklahoma, right? Maybe Rochester, not so much this year, but You know, again, he didn't make any excuses for it. He knew it was a problem. He said, I've got to figure out a way to get through that. Davey Martinez was saying the same things like, hey, you're going to pitch in D.C. in the summer. You're going to be dealing with heat and humidity. So hopefully that was a one-time blip and that doesn't come up again. But I almost feel like, and, and I'm not saying that that's the root cause of everything, but I almost feel like I have to give that qualifier to everything from the night. It's almost like I can't truly evaluate him because you knew he was struggling so much with that one issue. Especially the curveball. That's where I noticed it the most. All three batters he hit were on curveballs and they were nowhere close. And if you look at the strike zone plot for him for the game, you'll see, especially the curveball, you've got like seven or eight of them that are way up and in to right handed hitters, and like another seven or eight that are way down and away, like the extreme diagonal line of pitches that he threw with that pitch in particular. That just said to me, that's not a true reflection of, of what he's capable of doing, and he's got to figure out a way to not let that happen again.
0: Yeah, the hit-by-pitches were impossible to ignore. In a two-run Reds first, Cavalli issued a one-out hit-by-pitch of Jonathan India on a 1-2 pitch. In a three-run Reds fifth, Cavalli issued a one-out hit-by-pitch of TJ Friedel to load the bases. Uh, Cavalli then got pulled from the game and then Erasmo Ramirez came into the game. And, you know, it's tricky with Erasmo because he actually ended up pitching well, but you can't just say that he pitched well because on his third pitch of the game, He gave up a one-out three-run double by Aristides Aquino to left field for a 7-1 Reds lead. Let's get into the defense behind Cade Cavalli on Friday night because this was an issue and this was disappointing. We've talked lately about the Nats' great run prevention and it hasn't just been the good pitching, it's been some good defense behind these pitchers. But you go through some of the specifics with Cade Cavalli on the mound on Friday night. So in that two-run Reds first, k Ruiz got charged with a pass ball on a pitch that was up and in on Kyle Farmer. I don't know. That was not an easy ball to catch for Kbert, but technically there was a pass ball in that inning. Then you had a two-out infield single by Donovan Solano up the middle. On this play was C.J. Abrams being charged with a throwing error. Here's a swing and a ground ball toward the middle. Abrams gets to it. Off-balance throw and a hop. Oh, it gets by Voight and goes over toward the camera well. I do not think that C.J. was necessarily guilty of a throwing error here, but he did a nice job of getting to the grounder, then made a difficult throw on the run in the opposite direction in which his body was going. He made a one-hop throw that Luke Voigt at first base did not catch. And I thought Luke Voigt could have made that catch. I mean, this was a one-hop throw, not an easy catch, but this was a -a catchable throw. And Voigt actually toppled to the infield dirt in attempting to make that backhanded catch. Look, Luke Voigt can hit. He is not a great defensive first baseman. You then had in that three run Reds fifth, a couple of things pop up. So Cavalli got the first out on a force out off the bat of Donovan Solano, but that play could have resulted in a 4 6 3 double play. The play did not result in a double play. Thanks to the returning Luis Garcia, and it was nice to see him back. But Luis at second base delivered a flip to CJ Abrams at second base that was wide of the bag, prevented the double play from being made. So the Nats only got the force out on that play. And then on that aforementioned three-run double by Aristides Aquino, Abrams was charged with a second throwing error, and this was a more legitimate throwing error as a throw home was way off. So again, I know it may sound like we're making excuses to a degree, but it's not as simple as seven runs in four into third innings. The defense behind Cade Cavalli in this game was not good enough.
1: No, and I think the two that stand out the most is the first inning, it's the Abrams bounce throw to Voight. Now it makes a great play. I I didn't think he was going to get to the ball up the middle. He made a really nice play. We're seeing now this is one of the things that he does really well, gets to balls to his left and gives himself at least a chance to get the batter out. Now, he tries to make that running throw across your body, not a very comfortable, easy throw. Davey Martinez actually said afterwards, we want to get him to start spinning, you know, around, not trying to throw across his body. Uh, That's something that they're going to work with him on. He's not very comfortable doing it, but he think it's going to help him out a lot better. He's not real comfortable doing that yet. He's still learning how to do that. So that's where the throw didn't have a lot Of mustard on it, and that's why it's bounced. But I agree with you. Luke Voigt had a great shot at the very least, preventing the ball from getting away from him, if not actually making the scoop and getting the batter out. He makes that catch. The inning is over, no run score. And he keeps the pitch count down with 10 extra pitches that Cavalli threw after that before the inning was over. So that's number one. And then the missed four, six, three you described, it was a tailor made play. And Garcia got a little casual in his flip. If he just, instead of doing a fancy backhand flip, pick it up, nice, hard underhand toss, feed C.J. Abrams well, he's going to make the turn and make a strong throw to first. And instead, Abrams didn't even have a chance to do that. So again, very different outlook. So I'm looking at four of the seven runs right there that you could maybe have taken off the board if a couple of plays are made. Now, it's up to the pitcher. We've seen it plenty of times over the years guy makes a mistake behind you, you pick him up, you get the next batter out. Cavalli didn't always do that in these cases. But on a night when he probably could have used some help to get him through a nerve wracking and sweaty major league debut, he didn't get a lot of that help from his defense.
0: Yeah. I don't quite understand that first throwing error on Abrams. Why is that an error on him? I mean, I guess you could say, well, the throw was a one hopper, but just if you're watching the play and just sort of applying basic baseball logic – That's a catch that Luke Voigt should make. I mean, you know, that's not an unreasonable play to ask your first baseman to make. And I think it's one of these instances where it's like, this is why errors can be misleading because – in some ways, Abrams is penalized for having the range to get to that ball. That was not an easy ball to get to. That was up the middle. He makes a nice play. OK, the throw could have been better. I, I recognize that. But, like, Luke Voigt's got to make that catch, man. And he doesn't. And we've seen him do that. And I know you've brought up the idea that since this offseason, perhaps signing a veteran first baseman who's more adept at catching one-hop throws And, you know, look, I don't think the Nats should be going bonkers signing a veteran first baseman, but I don't think that's a terrible idea. They could use that. And you see game in, game out, how having a first baseman who's good at saving throws and catching one hoppers can make a big difference for you. I mean, that's not a strength of Luke Voigt. And uh, that was costly in that first inning.
1: Just think about over the years, how many errors did Adam LaRoche and Ryan Zerman save his infielders from committing? A lot of them. Over the years. so I, you know, I do. I don't know who that guy is. I haven't really looked at the free agent market. I don't know that that's a number one priority for them. But when you have a young infield like they do and are planning to, and let's also assume that Carter Keboom's their third baseman next year, that does seem to me like a potential priority to help them in their development. It's not just about trying to win more games right now. It's trying to help those guys become better as they grow for the future. Real quick on that on the scoring of that play, I get what you're saying. Two things though: it was actually scored a single and then advanced on the air, so that's an acknowledgement of it was a tough play to begin with, and it would have required a not a normal throw to get him out. The problem is once the ball gets away and the runner advances, you have to account for that somehow. You can't give him a double, so you have to decide who to give the air to. And I'd say 99 out of 100 times if the throw is not on the fly, they will give it to the thrower, not to the guy trying to catch it. Not to say that a good first baseman shouldn't make that play, but if the throw bounces, they will tend to give it to the guy who threw it, not to the guy who's trying to make the catch.
0: Yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, if you watched it, Voight fell over. I mean, it just he he does not look uh, fleet of foot when he's at first base. I I was thinking about this too, with uh, the Luke Voight situation at first base. So, Obviously, right now, for the most part, what we're seeing is Nelson Cruz, DH, Luke Voigt, first base, Joey Manessis, right field. What do they think defensively of Manessis at first? Because here's what I'm getting at. If you're going with this poor defensive alignment because you're just trying to get Nelson Cruz his plate appearances at DH, I don't think that that's acceptable. Like, Nelson Cruz is going to be gone after this season. Would it be so bad if down the stretch of the season, you went more with Voigt as the DH, Manessis at first base, or is Manessis also a major defensive liability at first? Do you know how they feel about Manessis defensively?
1: I don't know if they view him as like an above average first baseman, but I do know Davey has talked him up as being sort of like surprisingly better than you think and versatile enough to play both first base and right field. We haven't seen a lot of him at first for those reasons that you just outlined, so it's hard to know what we're really talking about. I would Think they probably evaluate him as a better defensive first baseman than Luke Voigt. I think Luke Voigt, if he's back next year and he's under contract, they could choose to non-tender him or trade him or something like that. I would think he's looking at a DH spot next year. Whether Joey Manessas is the first baseman or not, I don't know. The other problem with all that is they don't really don't have much going on in the outfield <laughs> at the moment. So unless you're going to play Alex Call. Lane Thomas and Victor Robles in your outfield. Maybe when Yadiel Hernandez comes back from his injury, that could create a little bit more depth in the outfield and allow you to move Manessas. But I get exactly what you're saying. And it's not a great look that right now, and it's really been the case all year. When you have one guy who's locked in as your DH, the domino effect that has is now you have to put somebody else at first base who maybe shouldn't be there, or at least should DH some of the time. And now you're putting a in theory, natural first baseman in right field. And the reason you're doing that is, if you're David Martinez, you think, we got to put all our best bats we can in there because we're not scoring any runs, which they aren't. But it's not like Nelson Cruz has been some huge producer for them either. So it's not a great, you know, look at what the current state of that lineup is. It, it's pretty pathetic what they're what they're putting out there right
0: now. Yeah, I mean, you have twice as many losses as you have wins. You're forty two and eighty four. You don't have to do anything, okay? You you do. I mean, you need to be thinking big picture with everything. I understand if you're the manager, you can't stand losing game in game out. You want to win. Nelson Cruz's bat, for the most part, isn't helping you win. And, you know, as the season is starting to wind down here, you don't have to show any loyalty to him. You don't have to be, you know, disrespectful to him. And I'm not saying you bench him for the rest of the season, but he doesn't have to be your every game DH. You know, if he's not starting for you a few times a week now, I think that's okay, And I think it does weaken the Nationals defensively. So Cade Cavalli is in the Nats rotation. Obviously, we're going to hope for better the next time out. We'll be checking the humidity index uh, the next time he's set to pitch. How did he strike you as uh, kind of a guy, you know, and talking to him after the game? You know, he certainly looks the part 6'4", 240. I mean, you know, you notice him when he's pitching. And, you know, the talent is undeniable with him. But what struck you in hearing from Cade Cavalli?
1: What struck me was, and didn't actually strike me because having talked to him in spring training a bunch of times and seen him pitch in good and bad times, this is exactly who he is. There's confidence there. There absolutely is. He said, he took the mound and he actually said, I was surprised at that I wasn't more nervous. He used the word comfy to describe how he felt on the mound. Now, maybe that's before he actually started sweating because I would never imagine anybody calling themselves comfy when you're pouring buckets (laughs) from everywhere over the course of the night. But he is a confident kid and he has mound presence. He absolutely does. Like you said, he looks the part. He's an intimidating presence out there. You know what I was actually most surprised at just from a pitching standpoint? I think he topped out at 98. Not to shirk at that as though that's nothing impressive, but this is a guy that we maybe think of as consistently throwing 97, 98 and approaching 100. There really wasn't any of that. Now, maybe he was dialing it back. Maybe it had something to do with the grip that he didn't really feel like he could cut loose all the way and have any clue where it was going to go. But he was confident. He mostly came out of it feeling good about the experience. He knows he's got work to do. He knows he's got to execute his pitches better. You know, Wasn't trying to make excuses for anything, but he also sounded like he belonged. And I think for the most part, the Nationals looked at that and said, yeah, he is the right guy to be here right now. Let's not judge him on one start. Let's see at the end of this, once he's made six or seven starts, whatever it is, before the season's over, and let's get a better sense of what he is. Now, that said, it's a letdown. It is disappointing because there was so much hype to it. And in a season in which everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong, you were hoping in the back of your mind, you know, they're due for something good to happen. Boy, would it be nice if he could come in and and just really look impressive on day one. And that wasn't the case.
0: Yeah. And, you know, if you're trying to attract the casual baseball fan or someone who was maybe checked out on the Nat season because of the state of the season, you know, and that person looks at a box score on Saturday morning and says, OK, well, how did this guy Cade Cavalli do? Uh, seven runs, four into third innings. OK, no, thank you. You know what I mean? Like you would like for him to have done something so that, you know, people can say, oh, well, this is kind of cool that this guy Ended up doing as he did. It's funny, too, because like the obvious comparison is Strasmus, the Steven Strasburg debut and the comp, the similarity to Strasburg wasn't the performance, but it was the sweating. Right. We know that Strasburg sweats a lot. And Kate Cavalli on Friday night ended up sweating a lot. Now a word from our sponsor, Better Health. The way I take care of my mind is daily exercise. It is essential for me. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Everyone I know who does therapy swears by it. It feels like all I hear these days is how you have to start doing therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you don't have to fight traffic or look for parking. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com/NatsChat. That's Better H-E-L-P.com/NatsChat.
2: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. The 1 0. Swinging a crown ball up the middle. It'll sneak through for a base hit. Vargas rounding third, coming home, and he will score. Center fielder Friedel plays it back in. Luis Garcia with a seeing eye RBI single gets the Nationals on the board here in the bottom of the third inning. It's now Cincinnati 4 and the Nationals 1.
0: Well, officially, the Nats bullpen on Friday night was good. Four and two-thirds scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Orasmo Ramirez, two and two-thirds scoreless innings officially. Steve Ciszek had a perfect inning, and then Jake Pegee had a scoreless inning. But like we said, the Orasmo Ramirez double that he gave up takes off some of the sparkle from that outing from the Nats bullpen. Offensively for the Nats on Friday night, eight hits, just two walks, two for six with runners in scoring position. We did have a Luke Voigt home run. We also had the return of Luis Garcia. Like we said, uh, this was actually a pretty big day on Friday. When you think about Cade Cavalli debuting, Luis Garcia making his return. You had a lot of guys in the Nats lineup who you certainly hope are foundational pieces moving forward. You know, you you wonder about like five years from now, might we look back on this lineup as, oh, wow, that's kind of cool who was playing that night versus who ended up being a foundational piece moving forward. Luis Garcia had been on the 10-day injured list retroactively since August 13th. With a left groin strain. Like we said, he did have that defensive blunder in the Reds' three run fifth with the wide toss to second base for CJ Abrams, but he also, in a Nats' one run third, had a two out RBI single up the middle and a stolen base, and he was the Nats' number two batter in this game on Friday night. Uh, It was nice to see Luis Garcia out there, and clearly, second base now is his position moving forward.
1: Yeah, this is going to be alignment the rest of the year. It's Abrams at short. Garcia at second. They are lockering next to each other. They are hanging out together. They're only one year apart in age. So they're going to get to know each other really well. That's what you want. Now, can they develop that chemistry on the field to the point that they become a smooth double play combination? It's clearly not there yet. And both guys have some work to do, but you can see the potential there and how it could work. Garcia did make a nice play later in the game, I think, going to his left on a ball when he was shifted. And he had to go like way over there to make the play and made a strong throw. 2 our RBI hit was nice. Stolen base was nice. I was glad and a little surprised to see him hitting second, especially against a left-hander. So That was good. Abrams is still not really doing anything at the plate. We haven't talked about him that much. All the talks about, about him defensively, he has been pretty weak at the plate so far, and I think that's the reason why we haven't seen him move up in the lineup yet. He's got to do something first to merit it. So, offensively, as a team, they are doing very little right now. And that's why their only hope, and we saw it on the West Coast, is pitch well and play good defense. You're going to have a chance to win a game, but those scores are going to be three to two. They haven't scored more than three runs in a game in, I think, almost a week now. And this is who the lineup is. It's not suddenly going to have this infusion of great hitters. So either these guys are going to have to find a way to get the job done or the pitching and defense is going to have to be outstanding.
0: Yeah. So I was just about to ask you about the offense of C.J. Abrams. Uh, It has not been good. 38 played appearances, 10 games. He has a slash line of 162 batting average, 184 on base percentage, 162 slugging percentage with the Nats. He has six hits. All of them are singles. He has not hit for any power. He has not drawn any walks. I mean, I think we are all on board with being patient and not rushing to judgment at the same time. I mean, you do want to see something, man, okay? Like, you know, it's not like you get a free pass the rest of the season. And there just has not been much happening. Have you heard anything in terms of like what the Nats think about this? Is it just, hey, give the kid some time? He's only played in ten games. You know, he is thought to be a five-tool guy or a potential five-tool guy. Like he is supposed to be someone who can hit. Uh, and he, you know, hasn't hit for the Nats so far here.
1: Yeah, I think the key here is he's 21 years old, and I think we all think of him as an established big leaguer already because he spent most of the year in San Diego when Tatis got hurt. Chances are, if not for that injury, he wouldn't have been up and maybe the Nats don't even feel like they need to have him up in the big leagues yet. This probably should have been a triple-A season for him, maybe a late-season call-up, and instead, if you're the Nationals in their situation, and rightfully so, you put him out there and just let him learn on the fly and, and how to do this now, but there are growing pains. so He's still got a ways to go. Kind of like Luis Garcia, he is good at contact, but too much so in that he can get the bat on the ball on a lot of pitches out of the zone, and that leads to some weak contact. saw in this game, three pop-ups. That's not what you're looking for from a speed guy. You get the bat on the ball, get it on the ground or hit some line drive. So I think they were working with him to be more selective and pick the right pitches to put into play instead of just saying, well, I can get to any pitch. so Therefore, I'm going to have to do it. So It's a work in progress, but 21 years old, I think right now they do want us focus more on defense than anything. Let's see at the end of September once he's had, I don't know, 100, 150 plate appearances, how it all looks. But there is some work to do there, obviously.
0: Well, if you're looking for optimism regarding one of the position players who the Nats got in the Juan Soto-Josh Bell trade, James Wood on Friday night, four for six with four runs, two RBI. His OPS now is at 947. He is playing for the Fredericksburg Nationals, who on Friday night destroyed the Down East Wood Ducks' 20... 3-8, included in that game, a 13-run seventh inning. How about the Fred Nats? You know, the bigger thing, obviously, is this guy Wood is hitting really well right now for the Fred Nats, but geez, a 13-run seventh inning on Friday night in a 23-8 victory.
1: Call them all up, right? I mean, are they capable of scoring three or four runs in a major league game? Maybe. You know, obviously, they're not going to do that, but very encouraging to see from one of the top prospects they got and this kid is a physical specimen everybody says and he's still growing i think he's six seven already everybody who has seen him in person is raved about him you know it's late in the year so they're probably not going to promote him i wouldn't think at this point but somebody who you're going to keep an eye on next year and it'll be interesting to see how quickly they move him up the ladder
0: The other guy with the Fred Nats doing well right now is Jackson Rutledge, who finally, it feels like, maybe has some momentum in his professional career. Uh, Last five starts, 32 innings, 33 strikeouts, an ERA of 169 and a whip of 1.031. The crowd on Friday night at Nationals Park, we were curious about this. Would there be a substantial impact of Cade Cavalli's Major League debut on the crowd Uh, Official attendance, 31,256. It's not going to blow anybody away, but for Nats Reds this late in the season, that's not bad. But what did you make of the crowd on Friday night?
1: I would not have guessed it was (laughs) 31,000. I'm usually pretty good at estimating, you know, within a few thousand here or there. I thought it was more in like the maybe mid 20s. And beyond that, there was not a lot of juice in the crowd. Now they're trailing early, so, you know, that's something to do with it. But It didn't feel like any part of that crowd was there just for Cavalli. There wasn't a whole lot of extra, you know, he got nice ovations. He walked out to the bullpen and when he came out, you know, for the first inning and all that, but there was not like a real vibe in the park that, hey, this is a unique night. Something special is going on tonight. It was a Friday night, late summer, usually going to draw pretty well. I was kind of disappointed in just the enthusiasm and I'm not blaming fans, i Understand why there's not a lot of enthusiasm right now, but I didn't sense, from my vantage point, that there were a lot of people there because it was Cavalli's debut. I think that's probably close to what they would have had anyways. And I'm very curious also the rest of this homestand. School's in session now. Once we get to next week and you got weeknight games against the A's and a Thursday afternoon game, which may be Cavalli's next start. Those could be some pretty low numbers, and I think we're going to start to now see over the rest of the season really where the fan interest is in this team and how big a concern it could be going into next year when a season ticket base is probably going to go down as low as it's ever been.
0: Yeah, it's tough. And especially with seven runs and four into third innings, it's not going to do a lot to generate buzz moving forward. I mean, again, to go back to Steven Strasberg, I remember it wasn't just his major league debut. His second outing, I think, was against Cleveland. And I think it was a, a Sunday, if I remember correctly. And there was anticipation for that outing because of what he had done in the first outing. And one outing built off of the previous outing. And each outing led into the next outing. And like, you sort of went through that. And when a guy gets off to a rough start like that, for whatever reason, it just kind of slows down whatever momentum there might be. Like, again, the casual fan isn't saying, well, but, you know, he was sweaty and there was bad defense behind him. Like, no, you see seven runs in four to third innings. The team has the worst record in the majors. And you're like, OK, whatever, you know, and like that was not something uh, that you wanted to see. There was major news in Major League Baseball on Friday that if you're a Nats fan, was hard to ignore. This mega contract extension that reportedly has been agreed on between the Seattle Mariners and their stud young rookie outfielder Julio Rodriguez. Now, first of all, you need like a PhD to truly understand this extension. This is, I think, the most complicated baseball contract and probably sports contract ever in terms of what it entails. But the gist of this is that this is a mega money contract extension that a stud young position player is signing with a team in his rookie season that's going to lock up this player for years to come. Basically, the contract is $210 million guaranteed, carries the possibility of maxing out as the longest and largest contract in MLB history at $470 million. The deal could be worth 8, 13, 16, or 18 years based on player... And team options. Again, you read through the details of this contract, it is ultra complex. It's like the tax code, but again, the details don't matter so much. I know we've had this conversation. I don't know if at this point it's beating a dead horse. But man, if you're a Nats fan and you're upset about what happened with Juan Soto, it is hard to stomach all of these quality young position players who keep signing long-term contracts with teams that eat up arbitration years, buyout free agency years and the Nats didn't do it with Soto and haven't done it with any player previously. And I understand Scott Forrest. I think we get that it was hard to do with these guys, maybe impossible to do with someone like Soto. But man, the Atlanta Braves do it with Michael Harris II and Austin Riley and Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzy Albies. And the Tampa Bay Rays do it with Wander Franco. And now Seattle has done it with Julio Rodriguez. And I don't blame any Nats fan for having questions and for just looking at this and shaking your head and going, how come them, and why not us?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely fair, and it's frustrating for everybody every time this happens, especially when it's happening right on the heels of the Nats and what they've had to do, or felt they had to do. But like you said, and it's we have to point out, because I think it is maybe the number one factor in all this, none of those guys that you mentioned who have signed long-term extensions earlier in their careers, are represented by Scott Boris. Now, if you're the Nationals, as you move forward, are you saying we're gonna try to avoid Boris clients altogether? I don't know that's a sound strategy. The guy represents some great players. There's no question about that. But you would have liked to think that someone along the way here, they could have gotten to do it. And really in their entire history, it's two guys. It's Ryan Zimmerman and it's Steven Strasburg. Zimmerman, not a Boris client, Strasburg, yes. And arguably, that wound up backfiring because, yes, he stayed, but through Scott Boris's genius, they included that opt-out right after the World Series that put the Nats in a bad spot where they felt like they had to re-sign him at that point for seven more years, and now look what they're stuck with. So, yeah, it's frustrating. It's absolutely frustrating, and you want to say, why can't this happen here? There's a variety of reasons for it, but you just hope, That one of these young studs that they are getting now, and maybe who's already debuted or will be debuting sometime soon, establishes himself as the next face of this franchise and that they can convince him that they want to stay here and be the face of the franchise for a long time.
0: Yeah. The thing with the Strasburg extension too is I don't even count that as one of these extensions because that was in his free agency year. That was May of 2016. He was set to be a free agent after that season. So that was more like, that would be like signing Josh Bell to an extension this year. Like he's going into free agency. You happen to sign him to an extension that season. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, we get why it's just hard to accept the what. I really do believe that. And, you know, I don't know, we don't know, to the extent to which the Nats have tried to do this with guys. But I've asked around and I've never heard that the Nats were super aggressive in trying to do this with any of these guys. And if you know the learners, you know that their ML in sports and in business is you don't pay until you have to pay. And so the idea of being uber aggressive early in the process isn't really their thing. It's more Let's wait until we have to pay and then we'll pay. You see this like with, say, picking up an option for Mike Rizzo or something like something that was so obvious that could have been done months ago. They don't do until like right until the deadline by which you need to exercise the option. And I think that that's kind of a a microcosm for how they've handled uh, these contractual situations with players where, you know, if you go through the Jeff Passan chronicling of the extension offers to Juan Soto, To me, everyone was like a day late and a dollar short. And so you could say, well, yeah, they offered them X, Y, and Z. Well, yeah, but when? It was way beyond when you should have. Like, you should have been doing this in 2018, 2019. And so to spin this forward, if it happens to be that a K-Bert Ruiz or a C.J. Abrams or a Luis Garcia or a Cade Cavalli or a Mackenzie Gore is really good early on, the time to extend him is now. It's not two or three or four years from now. It's now. You have to have like vision. And, you know, it is a rolling of the dice. Like you are committing money to someone who could flop and it can backfire. I mean, Victor Robles in 2019, I think a lot of us would have said, hey, sign him to one of these big money extensions. Well, had you done that, how would that look right now? So I get it. There is risk when you do this. But the payoff can be immense. The bargain can be immense. And yeah, I mean, you just hope that one of these young dads, one or more of these young dads proves himself worthy of an extension like this. But I think that that's important to keep in mind. Like The time to be thinking about that with these guys is now. It's not multiple years from now.
1: Yeah. And I think as you look back on the ones that they have attempted over the years, yeah, they would initiate conversations, maybe not rookie year, but after a couple of years. But like you said, the learner's Philosophy has generally been make a first offer that comes in kind of low, see what they say, and then, okay, well, they say, no, okay, well, we always have the opportunity to increase it. And the problem there is that smart players with smart agents will say, well, the system is designed to help you if you wait this out. So unless you're getting a number early on that is so clearly better than any of that and above, you know, the market value, just wait it out and that's where maybe their issue has been. They haven't made one of those, wow, they offered him how much, and he's still a rookie kind of contract. They offered him something and said, boy, it might be tempting to take that, but now deep down, if you study the economics of the sport, you understand that they're leaving money on the table to take a deal like that at that time.
0: What do you make of the complex nature of the Rodriguez extension? Do you think that this could be a model for extensions moving forward? You know, The other interesting thing too is that The extension is actually hinging to a degree on MVP voting. So people like you will play a role in the financial future of Julio Rodriguez. That's interesting.
1: So that's what I was going to say is uh, to me the most interesting and troubling part of it. As members of the Baseball Writers Association of America and we vote on awards and Hall of Fame and, and all that, we understand that those votes can have significant ramifications for the players in terms of money life-changing things. Generally speaking, it's never been a case where a handful of votes could have that dramatic of an impact, a direct impact. Sometimes it would be like, well, this guy gets a $100,000 bonus if he wins MVP or finishes top three in Cy Young, something like that. This is the most dramatic example I've ever seen of it. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars potentially hinging on things like MVP votes. It does trouble me as a voter, quite certain this is going to be something that probably after the season, the BBWA is going to discuss and maybe even try to come out against publicly and see if they can't convince Major League Baseball and the Players Association to prevent things like that from being in contracts. It's not a good look. We try to be impartial. I can tell you honestly, any vote I've ever given for any award, I've never once considered what it might do for someone financially, but it's not hard When it's that dramatic and when, you know, a couple guys can make a difference, it creates a huge potential conflict of interest that a lot of people in my profession are very uncomfortable with. So I'll be curious to see if that part of it holds up and if there is backlash against it.
0: Yeah, you know, the NBA has this issue too, because player eligibility for these Supermax contract extensions in the NBA hinges on you making all NBA teams. And so this has come up in the NBA of like, how come guys making all NBA teams? It's determining hundreds of millions of dollars. And yeah, it's not an ideal situation for sure. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast NatsChatPodcast.com at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers. Again, that email address, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, at NatsChatPodcast. Uh, you can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. That's NatsChatPodcast.square.site. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a brief one or two-sentence review saying that you like the podcast. The ratings and the reviews help us out a lot, and we very much appreciate them. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
1: P.J. White greets him with a
0: no-doubter to right field. Goodbye. Red Nats extend
2: the lead here in the seventh. Wilfried Zell, does he have a chance for three? Kick yourself out of time! Lock it, cock it, rock it, restock it! Wilfried Zell, duct tape Gordon Ramsay inside a Subaru Outback. Let's get cooked!